I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, during the month of March, I've got a special report I'd like to offer to you. The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. If you'd like to get your copy of the March special report, along with some bonus information, all you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com, and we'd be very glad to get it out to you. You know, past guest here on the program, Mr. James Rickards, had an article that he published this last week talking about the unintended consequences, maybe I should say the potential unintended consequences, of the Russian sanctions on the U.S. dollar. The article was extremely insightful, and I want to share it with you in this segment of today's program. Now, Rickard starts out his piece by explaining that the United States and its allies in the European Union and others around the world have imposed the harshest economic sanctions on Russia that have ever been used. He said, in the past, even nations directly at war with each other would continue to pay the debts that they owed each other. And he gives an example in his article. He said, since this war is in Ukraine... He took a look at another war that took place in Ukraine when Britain was at war with Russia. This was back during the Crimean War. Throughout the war, the Russian government kept paying interest to British holders of its debt, and the British government also kept paying its debts to the Russian government. One British minister, in fact, commented that civilized nations should pay their debts even to an enemy during wartime. Now, the United States and European allies outside Ukraine aren't directly at war with Russia at this point, but they've still imposed the most punitive economic sanctions in history. And as I'll talk about again in a moment, the assets of the Russian Central Bank in the U.S. have been frozen. This has never happened before. Now, Rickards points out that Russia has been kicked out of the SWIFT global financial telecommunications system. That is a dollar-based system in which international transactions are communicated and settled. And there's a long list of Russian banks and major companies that have been listed among those who cannot transact with Western parties, including the major Russian natural gas company from which many in Europe get their energy. Biden has also proposed, prohibited rather, exports of semiconductors, high-tech equipment, and other technology to Russia. Rickards says, according to his estimation, you can probably expect that the Russian economy will take a 25% hit. That's huge. A 25% hit is a depression level, a depression-sized economic hit. Now, Rickard says even when the kinetic war is over, 
the economic war is likely going to continue, and the effects on the worldwide economy will last for a long time because Russia is simply not going to take these hits without hitting back. In fact, Russia is already coming up with workarounds to defeat the sanctions. Russia is now teaming up with China to roll out the Chinese credit card system called Union Pay for Russian consumers. That's after Visa and MasterCard ended all business with Russia. As I reported here on the program, Russia is working with banks in China and India to reestablish hard currency payment channels. A hard currency payment channel uses gold. Well, there's now proposed legislation, according to Rickards in the U.S. Senate, to freeze gold reserves held by the Central Bank of Russia. But the problem is this. The gold is physical. It's about 2,300 tons, and it's inside Russia. It really can't be frozen or seized. The legislation would impose other boycott sanctions on any party that helps Russia in transporting or transacting gold. But as Rickards points out, this is going to be an easy one to evade. He said if Russia happens to put 100 tons of gold on a plane, for example, and they fly it to Beijing in exchange for manufactured goods, they're not actually going to broadcast it. There's not going to be a press release that talks about this activity. He said that's the kind of transaction that U.S. intelligence will not be able to detect. He said gold's easily melted down and re-refined into new bars with Chinese markings that are untraceable. And the Central Bank of Russia can buy more gold from Russian miners for rubles to make up for the shipment. Rickard says if this is the best the U.S. can do, then Putin is not, on, not only on his way to winning the shooting war, but may win the financial war as well. Now, Russia has implemented capital controls that will shift the pain of sanction from Russian borrowers to Western lenders. They're simply not going to pay on the bonds. And Russia has announced it's not going to export important chemicals, metals, and processed gases to any nation that has sanctioned Russia. Now, these exports are extremely important to manufacturing processes, including semiconductors, automobiles, and agriculture, according to Rickards. He said, in the end, most of the economic pain is going to fall on Western manufacturing and Western farming. Rickards says this is where the law of unintended consequences comes into play. Over 65% of the processed neon gas used to power lasers that make semiconductors comes from Ukraine. Between 35 and 50% of strategic metals like titanium and aluminum that are used in aircraft manufacturing, manufacturing rather by companies like Boeing and Airbus, those come from Russia. Much of the grain that feeds the Middle East and Africa comes from either Ukraine or Russia. Now, Russia also exports metals used in battery production for electronic vehicles. What metals are those? They, they include lithium, cobalt, nickel, 
Russia also exports oil, natural gas, and coal largely to Europe. Rickard says if Russia follows through, we could be looking at a shutdown of major industries around the world from semiconductors to heavy equipment and transportation. Biden, the Biden administration, according to Rickards, will find out the hard way that in a closely connected world, in a globalized economy, what happens in Russia just doesn't stay in Russia. He said the entire world will pay the final price. Now, Mr. Rickards wrote a book called Currency Wars back in 2011. I've read it. I would encourage you to do the same. In chapters 1 and 2 in his book Currency Wars, he laid out a scenario. The scenario that he laid out at the time was that Russia and China would accumulate large gold reserves, pool their gold, and launch a new digital currency backed by gold in place of the U.S. dollar. Russia and China would then insist that any purchases of Russian energy or Chinese manufactured goods be paid for using this new currency. It would be a clear-cut effort to get out from under the dominance of the U.S. dollar and protect themselves from U.S. dollar-based economic sanctions. And of course, that was pretty prophetic because that appears to be what may be playing out today. Now, the U.S. dollars we talked about on last week's program became the reserve currency of the world in 1944 when the Bretton Woods Agreement was put into place. The link between the dollar and gold was eliminated in 1971. And then the petrodollar deal was worked out by Kissinger and Nixon with Saudi Arabia in 1974. So the world has used dollars to a great extent through the present time. But now that the U.S. has frozen the reserves of the Central Bank of Russia, as we talked about at the outset of this segment, this could be the last straw for Russia and the world. After all, if dollar reserves are no longer a safe haven, the question is, who needs them? Who's going to want them? Won't much of the world demand something that can't be frozen by the U.S., that might be more dependable? Rickards concludes his article by saying the U.S. is destroying the value of the dollar by abusing sanctions. In the future, he says, the dollar will not be that important. It won't happen overnight, but the unprecedented sanctions against Russia will only accelerate the process. Now, bear in mind, I'm not commenting on the Russian sanctions from any perspective other than that That would be economic and might affect the purchasing power of the dollar. That's what we're about here at Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. However, I would encourage you to get a second opinion, and that's what the March special report does. You'll just need to go to requestyourreport.com and request the report, and I will send you the case for precious metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, 
when and how for precious metals. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling has been a longtime Forbes columnist. Uh, he is a prolific newsletter publisher. His, uh, his new letter, newsletter, Insight, is actually more like a magazine uh, that uh, is distributed each month. Um, he is going to give the listeners, any listeners that would like today, a complimentary copy of Insight. You can call 888-346-7444 to request a copy, and I would encourage you to do that. His website is agaryshilling.com. And Gary, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to have you on. Oh, same here, Doc. So, Gary, you uh, talk about the Fed's dilemma in your most recent Insight that the, the Fed... If they raise rates, they almost ensure a recession, or they back off and risk feeding an inflationary spiral. What option do you think they choose? <laughs> I think they've got the bit in their mouth. I think they, they've they really, uh, if they were approaching this uh, without any, any uh, history, they might want to hold off, particularly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think they've, they've been prepping the market so much on the idea of raising rates. And, of course, they were behind the curve when inflation took off uh, last year. Uh, so they, they, they really, their, their, their reputation is somewhat at stake, too. And, of course, they hope they can pull off a soft landing. And by that, I mean when a, a series of rate increases on their policy rate, the overnight federal funds rate, uh, and, and soft landings when they raise rates and then reduce them without a recession. Uh, well, that is not the odds-on favor. If you look back to the early 50s when they started using this as a policy rate, uh, more times than not, they got a recession. And I think now, with all the turmoil of supply chain disruptions, reopening the economies after after uh, uh, after the virus, and of course disruptions because of Russian invasion of Ukraine, the, the the Fed's job is much much more difficult. So I think I think to say that uh, even though Chairman Powell says they hope they can pull off a soft landing, I say lots of luck, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, Gary, when when you when you take a look at inflation and uh, the 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 uh, methodology that's been used to calculate the inflation rate has changed over the years. Um, it just seemed to me that a quarter point rate hike was kind of the equivalent of using a garden hose on a forest fire. Do you agree? <laughs> I agree with that. I like that analogy. Yeah, I, I think it is. And uh, I, I, I don't know how they get themselves locked into this. I mean, gradualism usually doesn't do the job in many, 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 many fields. I mean, you know, whether it's in, in military, whether it's in finance or whatever, uh, because what happens is everybody adjusts to it and it doesn't have the impact that, that you want. I mean, there are times like in the late 70s, early 80s, when inflation was raging. And uh, it, it's very interesting. Paul Volcker was Fed chairman then, and he went to Europe and 
wanted the European Central Bankers to support the, support the dollar, and they said, oh, no, Paul, that's your problem. And so he came back and convinced the rest of the uh, Fed Policy Committee uh, to, to uh, uh, tighten credit. They didn't want to raise rates, but, of course, it's the equivalent, and they got interest rates up to almost 20%, and, you know, that did the job. Uh, but that's, a, that's very much the exception. So... Gary, when, when you when you take a look at um, the, the and there's a couple ways I want to go here, but let, let's start with with inflation because um, you know I, you, I'm sure the, you 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 know what the actual inflation rate is uh, you know as reported by Chapwood Index or Shadow Stats they're, they're saying that calculated the way inflation was at the time Volcker actually made those decisions. We've got 15% inflation. Uh, let's start with the fact that do you agree with that assessment? Uh. Economists call that growthmanship. <laughs> growthmanship. You can <laughs> you can prove almost anything by picking the endpoints, by redefining uh, redefining the spectrum. You throw out what you don't want uh, in order to prove your your point. Um, you know, I, I think that's a. I don't find that a very fruitful fr- fruitful approach. I mean, when you get in when you get uh, inflation up into double digits, hey, it's 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 pretty it's pretty difficult because. In the past, it has encouraged inflationary expectations, and that's much more important to me than the inflation rate. Now, what I mean by that is people say, wait a minute, prices are going up. I better buy goods ahead of need to be price increases. So everybody does. Inventories are depleted. Uh, capacity is strained. Prices go up. Everybody says, hey, suspicion's confirmed. I'll buy even more, and the thing is self-feeding. Now, that's what happened in the late 60s and 70s. We don't have that now. And it's it's interesting when you look at the data, the surveys made by the uh, Michigan University of Michigan, the Conference Board, uh, the New York Fed, uh, all these uh, sort of Wall Street Journal. They all show that yeah, people worry about inflation one year out, but that's pretty normal. They project the current situation, but when they get out three to five years, they're looking at inflation rates more like you know two or three percent, much much different than it was in the past. In other words, there hasn't been the, those inflationary expectations. And and it's it's interesting, it's ironic that up until the pandemic, the Fed was worried about quite quite the reverse, self-feeding deflationary expectations, where people hold off waiting for lower prices and it feeds on the way down. So we've had a 180 degree change. I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't really want to be a Fed policymaker now. <laughs> I think these guys got a big problem. So uh, you know the the Atlanta Fed came out and, and adjusted their first quarter uh, GDP growth rate to zero. So. That, that kind of tells you that uh, you know they're maybe looking at that we're, that we're in a recession. Uh, you just a minute ago said uh, if they're looking for a soft landing, uh, you know, good luck with that. So, uh, are you predicting a recession? And, and, and yeah, yeah, and, yeah, I am, Dennis, and I've been mentioning it in the last <clears throat> couple of months of our, of our newsletter. And and just a, a very clear statistical evidence uh, <clears throat> in the third quarter of last year, um, the the real GDP, in other words, month over month annual rates taken out inflation increased uh, 2.2%. 2.1 of the 2.2 was because of inventory building. And in the fourth quarter, uh, the, the the number was uh, 6.4 and 4.9 of that was inventories. Now, those inventories, I feel a lot of them were not really desired. Everybody thought they were going to be short of Christmas gifts. Uh, they brought in a lot more and were come bringing a lot more inventories from Asia as those ships get unloaded in California and moved inland. And I, I think that we're, we, you know, if you had a reversal of what happened in the third and fourth quarter, you'd be down by 
uh, you wouldn't be flat. You'd be down in terms of the economy, economic growth by a couple of percentage points. And I, I don't think you should be surprised if that turns out to be the case. So how severe do you think this recession becomes, in your view? Well, it, it, that, that's a tough question because recessions have a lot of features. Uh, they, they historically have had these inventory buildups and then liquidation. When you're liquidating inventories, you're not producing because you're meeting orders out of fast, past inventory holdings, not new production. Uh, so that's always a feature. Uh, but of course, we had in the uh, after the financial crisis, you had this huge uh, collapse in housing. Housing is a small sector; it's only about six percent of the economy. But in that recession, it accounted for about two thirds of the decline in in economic activity. Uh, now, I don't think we have that extreme this point at this time. But we've got a lot of other things out there. There's been tremendous speculation going on. Fred's been fueling the economy since 2008, and um, and and uh, even more so in react, reaction to the pandemic. So uh, you've had a lot of money floating around there. This has created tremendous speculation. You look at cryptocurrencies. You look at at these SPACs. Um, you look at uh, coins, uh, Bitcoin, etc. A lot of speculation out there. So uh, we could have we could have a what I'm getting at. We could have a, a considerable uh, recession here. Probably more on the financial side than on the goods and services side, but that's still pretty pretty tough for investors. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is the publisher of the newsletter Insight. Our listeners can get a complimentary copy of his newsletter by calling 888-346-7444, and uh, Dr. Schilling's website is agaryschilling.com. Gary, you know... Uh, just to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent here, and you mentioned it in your March uh, Insight, um, gasoline prices obviously are, are the big headline in, in most households today. That's the topic of conversation. Where do you see gas prices going? Well, they, they probably aren't going to go down with any appreciable, uh, appreciable amount until the economy gets soft. Now, you know, the, the, the modern catch a phrase for this, Dennis, as you know well, is demand destruction. In other words, prices get high enough, people can't afford it. Uh, they drive less. They make uh, they, they, they make uh, more trips with other passengers, uh, et cetera. So you do have a reaction. And, of course, that's detrimental to the, to the economy. But, uh, I, you know, gasoline, it's, it's tough to say because we don't really know what's going to happen with, with Russia. And, of course, all the plans to reinvigorate U.S. production frackers and and uh, and gas from Qatar and other places. These these take time, so you it's possible you could have a considerable further spike in in gasoline prices before this whole thing unwinds. But I think the ultimate the ultimate result is going to be uh, a recession, and and of course gasoline is very important as I point out in that in that uh, March insight because people buy it frequently enough they remember what they paid the last time. I mean, I, you, you look at something like a water heater. You remember what you paid the last time you had water in the floor in the basement and you had to get a water heater? Probably not. It, it may be 10 or 15 years and you don't remember that. But gasoline, when you're tanking up uh, at least once a week, you do remember. So that makes it a lot more psychologically important. Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. His website is agaryshilling.com. You can get a complimentary copy of his excellent Insight newsletter by calling 888-346-7444.
I'll return with Dr. Gary Schilling and continue my conversation with him after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting uh, with Dr. A. Gary Schilling today. Uh, Dr. Schilling is the publisher of the newsletter Insight. If you're just joining us, you can get a complimentary copy of his newsletter by calling 888-346-7444. And uh, his website is agaryschilling.com. So, Gary, you mentioned in the last segment, just to kind of pick up uh, uh, about where we left off, that uh, you're forecasting a recession um, you also talk about in your March Insight that, uh, in your view, uh, the housing market looks vulnerable, and certainly we're seeing uh, mortgage rates tick back up. So how do you see uh, that playing out in a recession? Well, uh, weakness. I mean, housing has been supported by, by several things. One is low mortgage rates, as you pointed out. One was people with the pandemic leaving uh, cramped city apartments, moving to the suburbs, rural areas with more room for home offices or homeschooling of the kids. Um, and the third one was the stimulus money that was pumped into the economy in reaction to the pandemic in uh, 2020 and, and last year. Now, those factors are largely gone, and you point out mortgage rates are, are rising and housing is very sensitive. So I, I think we are, I think we are uh, going to see a lot more weakness in housing. It's already, it's already started. If you look at uh, existing home sales uh, in, in February, they were down 7.2% from, from January. And I think we're going to see a lot more, a lot more of the same, because because people, you know, people cannot uh, afford the mortgage rates. Uh, they're priced out of the market. There's been a mad scramble, and it has had some of the self-feeding aspects of people coming in with a checkbook and and outbidding each other. It, this is not the bubble we had with subprime mortgage-driven housing. That was absolutely insane, uh, and and collapsed into the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, but it certainly, it certainly is a is a problem, and as I say, a lot of people, when you look at where where have they accumulated assets in the last few years? Well, it's been stocks and and uh, owner occupied housing. Uh, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, th- th- those have been the big factors, and if they're in trouble, uh, a lot of people are going to have to pull in their horns. So, Gary, you're not you're not thinking we're going to see a decline like we saw then in in 2007, 2008. You're, you're thinking it's going to be more mild. Yeah, I mean, back then. Uh, back then, house prices declined by about a third. Um, you know, I, I I would look more like 10, 15 percent, but still, that's a lot for somebody that's highly leveraged. Because you know, think about it. Uh, people don't normally look on housing as highly leveraged, but if you put down three percent, which you can with a, a FHA loan, and borrow the rest, uh, you've got a 33 to one leverage. Now, normally people say, well, that's fine because house prices rise and uh, you're going to live in the house. But that didn't happen in 2008 when they collapsed. A lot of people uh, learned what leverage is on the downside. So, Gary, let's shift a little bit because often when we see real estate decline, uh, we see stocks uh, you know, decline at the same time. Uh, in your view, did we see the highs in the market at the end of 2021? Yes, I think we did. I think we did. I, I think we're in a... We're in the opening stages of a bear market, and you know if if you look back historically, uh, bear markets uh, associated with recessions 
uh, I think the average decline of the S&P 500 was 37 uh, percent. Now we're not, you know, we're not down. We're close to 10 percent so far. So I would say this is in the opening opening stage because I think we are in for a recession this year, and uh, we're, we're seeing. You know, when the Fed raises rates, you almost always get a recession. When the yield curve in, inverts, in other words, when short rates jump up more than long rates, you get a recession. You got a lot of things here that suggest this is almost inevitable. So, Gary, how much stock do you put in the, uh, the 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 stock metric, if you will, that's referred to as the Buffett indicator, uh, market capitalization over GDP, which obviously reached levels that were significantly higher than in 1999, which uh, obviously preceded, preceded yeah. the tech stock decline. Do, do, do you put a lot of stock in that, and, and do you think we could see a decline of that magnitude? Well, it's it's one it's one indicator, and you know it it makes a lot of sense because it basically says how much are you willing to pay for the total output output of the economy. Now, the output of the economy has got a lot of pieces. It's got government spending in there, consumer, business spending, the foreign sector, and so on. So it's a pretty uh, it's a it's a pretty broad brush approach. But I think it, it's one of the many uh, it's one of the many indicators that say that. That uh, the stock market is just out of hand. Another one that I like is one put together by a friend of mine, uh, uh, Robert Schiller, uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist from Yale, and and he looks at stocks uh, in relation to earnings, not not in the future, but over the last ten years, and and uh, to earn out the cyclicality. And right now, to get stocks back to their long-term average in relation to to uh, earnings, you'd need a 55% decline in prices on the S&P 500, and markets usually don't just stop at the trend line; they go below. So you can look at a lot of things, but I, I think that uh, Buffett's measure or Schiller's uh, cyclic adjusted PE, there are a lot of them, and they all they all tell you those stocks are very overpriced. So Gary, if we could uh, uh, look at uh one element uh, that's often used to talk about economic health, uh, the unemployment rate um, is, 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 is pretty decent. Um, how accurate do you think that figure is and how many people have left the workforce? Give, give us your take on, on uh, just the employment picture. Well, the unemployment rate uh, is, and there, there are a whole bunch of measures, but the headline number is fairly misleading because here's how it's defined. They look at the people who are who are looking for a job, actively looking for a job, and this is a survey. In other words, they got to say, I'm looking for a job, and then that's the numerator and the denominator is those people plus the people who are actively employed. That's how they define the unemployment un- un- rate. So it can change dramatically depending on what's happened. If you have, if you have fewer people employed, uh, the, the unemployment rate goes up. If you have more people looking for a job, it will, it will go up. And I, I think right now it's it's very confusing because you've had a lot of people who dropped out of the labor force. You look at the uh, people who are retired, and and there are about a half a million people more uh, since the pandemic who have retired than the normal trends would suggest. So you have a lot you have a lot of things going on, and of course you had all the uh, you had all the the subsidy subsidy payments in react in reaction to the uh, COVID. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure the unemployment rate tells us a lot because I think what, what we've seen is a lot of people who uh, really were on the sidelines, but now uh, they've run out of money. They haven't got the resources. I rather suspect a lot more of them are going to be forced back into the labor market, and we'll see the unemployment rate uh, uh, rise because of that.
Gary, in your uh, March Insight, um, and I'm just going to read this, um, you say there's no limit on federal government borrowing. That's the message of modern monetary theory, which maintains there's plenty of money to fund virtually any level of federal deficits and debts, and that the federal government never defaults. What's your take on MMT? Well, I'm no fan of federal, federal uh, deficits or debt, and for one reason, I think that the government, government is inherently inefficient. There's no bottom line. There's no pressure for efficiency. So uh, government spending, I think, is inherently inefficient. Now, there are some times when you get into a deep recession and so on where you, you really do need that. You really do need that help. But, but yeah, I, I, just, I just think that right now there is no practical limit. Now, that article that you cite, we, we went through a whole, whole bunch of calculations and analytical exercises to say, what would it take? What would it take to get to the point that you did have a problem, and and I define that as a bet, debt bomb, the point that the that the deficit the debt is so big that interest on the debt, which is of course a big component of the deficit, simply grows geometrically, and and the way it turns out, just just looking at numbers, we would have to have we would have to have a, a basically a quadrupling of the interest rate average that the Fed that the that the Treasury pays on its debt. It now pays. Uh, 2.1% of GDP is the interest on the debt. It would have to go to about 8% before you got into uh, a, a, a what I call a debt bomb. And uh, I, I, hey, how would you get there? You'd have to have a, have a collapse of confidence in the in the federal government or inflation in double digits. Could happen, but I, I don't I don't think so. So uh, the only the only thing I think may happen is that that uh, as 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 the interest rates go up. And it does get more expensive. We won't have a debt bomb, but we could have a lot of concern in Washington, uh, in administration, whoever's in the White House and, and Congress, uh, realizing that this is really just getting out of hand. Well, Gary, when you, you, you in your newsletter you talk about, you know, as part of this whole analysis, you, you talk about the growth in entitlements. Uh, you know, we've got a debt of over $30 trillion. Uh, what, what could happen between now and the time that this, theoretical, hypothetical debt bomb were to occur uh, to allow us to reverse course? Isn't that going to require some type of fiscal responsibility on the part of the politicians? Yeah, I think it will, uh, Dennis, because if you look back historically, um, the the debt, and you always have to look at debt in relation to something else, uh, and I tend to look at it in, in relation to the size of the economy, GDP. Well, what happened after World War, uh, after World War II with the war, that debt in relation to GDP shot up to 100, 104%. Now, it subsequently declined uh, to about 35%. They didn't repay the debt. It was just the economy grew. In other words, this is a ratio of the debt uh, to, to GDP. Uh, so that, that, that is historically, that's, and that's the only instance we have where that happened. But I just don't see that kind of growth in GDP, I mean that was really the uh, aftermath of World War II. All the veterans came home. We had a housing boom, catch-up spending, because uh, all the uh, all the production had gone to the military in World War II. Very little spending on housing, etc. During the 30s, the Depression. So that was a pretty unique era. So I just don't see this. I just don't see this going away anytime soon. Uh, it might be. It might be uh, arrested if there's enough nervousness in. Washington, but uh, boy, that hasn't happened yet. 
Yeah, not even close yet, has it? <laughs> well, my guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Um, if you're just joining us, I would encourage you to get a complimentary copy of his newsletter, Insight. He's been gracious enough to offer a free copy to any listener that would like one. You can call 888-346-7444 to get one. Uh, his website is agaryshilling.com. I'd encourage you to check that, that out as well. Gary, always a pleasure to catch up with you and always appreciate uh, your insights, if you'll excuse the pun. Uh, well, I, I always enjoy talking to you, Dennis. You're you're one of the greater greatest interviewers that I have the privilege of working with, and I always look forward to it. Well, you're very gracious, and I thank you for that. We will return right after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to my special guest, Dr. Gary Schilling, for joining me on today's program. Hey, if you're just tuning in this week, I have a March special report I'd like to make available to you. It's titled A Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. All you need to do to request your complimentary copy of the report is visit the website requestyourreport.com, and we will be very glad to send it out to you. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. You know, this past week, I read an op-ed, and the op-ed was actually published on CNN, and it was written by a gentleman by the name of Mark Wolf. And I want to give you just a bit from the article. Rising inflation is hitting all sectors of the economy. The overall rate of inflation on an annual basis reached 7.5% at the end of January, the highest level since 1982. Gas prices in particular are rising especially fast, reaching $4.25 a gallon on Wednesday, up from about $2.86 per gallon last March. That means filling a 20-gallon tank right now costs $85.00 up from $57.20 last year at this time. A recent report by Moody's Analytics estimated that inflation was costing the average household $276 more per month, or about $1,100 per quarter. And given the instability in oil markets over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it wouldn't be surprising if those costs increased to more than $300 a month. Many Americans, especially those who are low and moderate income, can't afford to absorb such rapid price increases. Unfortunately, the federal government has limited tools to directly help families cope with rising gasoline costs and the overall increase in inflation. The administration could create a new program to help lower-income families pay for the high price of gasoline. They could raise interest rates to slow the economy. They could increase pressure on OPEC nations to increase petroleum production and find ways to ease supply chain disruptions. While all these actions could help, they would take time to work their way through the economy and slow the growth of inflation. Families need help now. The fastest and most effective way to protect vulnerable citizens from the impacts of global economic instability is to provide a direct payment through the IRS similar to the three stimulus checks that were sent to families at the height of the pandemic. 
Now that, my friends, is just dumb. That's like drinking to sober up. Why do we have inflation? It's because there was too much currency created. The official consumer price index, the official inflation rate for February came in at 7.9%. And if you measure it the way they did pre-1980, it's more than 15%. So here we are with someone proposing more stimulus checks. Now, there's a lot of people that really enjoyed getting the stimulus checks. But here's what they're not enjoying. They're not enjoying paying for those checks. Michael Mahari this past week wrote a piece for Shift Gold in which he said just that. We're all paying for those stimulus checks, whether or not you got one or not, because prices are going up. We have lots of inflation because we have a lot of money that is being created to, to, to pay for those things. So here we have a guy that wants to address the inflation problem by creating more inflation. Well, when you go to Economics 101 and take a look at what causes rising consumer prices, you have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services, and that's what makes prices go up. Now, Mahari articulates it this way. The government lockdowns during the pandemic exacerbated the problem by constricting supply. So, while supply shrank, demand actually increased because everybody had more dollars in their pockets even though they weren't going to work. In fact, we had more dollars chasing fewer goods and services. Prices went up. This is entirely predictable. Now you'll hear a lot of pundits telling you that inflation is the result of increased demand, and that's not entirely wrong. But what created the demand? Stimmy checks. Stimulus is to stimulate demand. That is the whole point. The point is that the stimulus checks that were issued last year are at least a factor in today's inflation problem. Now, let's say this idea of more stimulus checks were to get some traction. That would necessitate more borrowing by the U.S. government. And the U.S. government borrows by selling bonds. So who is going to buy those bonds? Mahari points out that over the last two years, the Fed has been one of the biggest buyers. And how, does they, how do they buy the bonds? They create currency. And that, by definition, is inflation. So here, the solution actually ends up being the problem. And, of course, the fact that the government has tried to solve a debt problem, and the Fed, I should say, is trying to solve a debt problem by creating more debt, is ludicrous as well. Now, Mahari says this. Here's a truth you should always remember. Whatever the government puts in your left pocket, it took from your right pocket. You ultimately pay for every government action. You might pay through government direct taxation. 
Your kids might pay if the Treasury borrows the money, or you'll pay through the inflation tax. But regardless, you're going to pay. And that's exactly what is going on right now. We are seeing inflation, but at some point, we will have to deal with the debt, and that's when deflation will kick in. We're all about education here at RLA Radio. That's why we're offering a March special report titled The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. If you'd like to get a copy of that report absolutely free, all you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. And if you'd like to check out the Headline Roundup webinar that I do every Monday live at noon, all the Headline Roundup webinars are posted at our website, which is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. We'll be back again next week.